And as you are being seated, if you would please turn in your copies of God's Word to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, that's page number 1,161. We're going to be starting in verse 25 and reading through verse 2 of the second of the next chapter. Listen carefully, because this is God's word for you today. Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hand, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God, as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let us go to him and ask his blessing on our text today. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this word that you have given to us. Lord, I pray that we would be able to find within it a rich encouragement to a loving life. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were given the task of naming the study of love, what would you call it? We could be uncreative. We could call it loveology or something like that. That's got a lot of vowels. You could be fancy and perhaps call it Valentinianism if you wanted to be. Add a little erudite sound to it. But would it surprise you if I was to say that the study of love already has a name? Would you be surprised to know that that name is ethics? Ethics is not ultimately a study of right and wrong. That's the result of that study. The study of ethics is ultimately a study of love. And I'm not just saying that because it's February and Valentine's Day is in this month. And I'm not even saying this because this is a particularly original idea. In fact, this goes all the way back to Jesus. In John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, what? Keep my commandments. This is what it means to love someone. Not the fuzzy, warm feelings typically associated with Valentine's Day cards, but as a one of action, one of following commands. So if we want to know how to love Jesus... 
we need to understand what he commands of us. If we want to truly love our neighbor, we need to know what he commands. Because surprisingly, love is not very intuitive. We think it would be. Just do what comes naturally. Well, naturally, we're sinners. That's not how we love, is by doing what comes naturally, as R.C. Sproul said. But it's by learning what it is, what we have in God's word. This is the real authority that we draw from. Even if we were to just do what comes natural to us, that's not any sort of authoritative statement. Who are you to say what is right or wrong? Who am I to say what is right or wrong? Wearing a suit and a bow tie, but that doesn't mean anything. Standing behind a piece of wood, but that doesn't mean anything. What means something is whether it comes from God or not. And that's what we find here in his word. Herman Bavink, a Dutch theologian, had said that doctrine is God loving us, a statement of what that looks like. And ethics is a statement of what our love looks like to God. Both of those things we draw from the scriptures. And, where, and here's where we are in this portion of Ephesians. We've seen, as we've been going our way through it, the first three chapters have been doctrine. How much God loves you. That all members of the Trinity have been involved in your salvation. The Father has elected you. The Son has redeemed you. The Spirit has sealed you. And not from a place of goodness, but from a place of deadness, as we saw in Ephesians chapter 2. And has opened the way to not only for us to be reunited to God, but for us to be reunited with each other. All good news. God loves you. Chapters 1 through 3. Now we're in 4 through 6. How do you love God? How do you love these people that you have been recently united to? Well, that's what we're seeing here in chapter 4. Here we were told all the ways in which, on the basis of which we have been united. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. That we have been given new life. And that this means putting off the old life. That old man that clings to us, that wants to tell us how we should live our lives in sin... We're supposed to put that off and put on the new man, put on this new life. But what does that new life look like? That's where we start in verse 25. We're going to look at our two points today, as you can see in your outline on the back of your prayer guide in the bulletin. The two points that I want us to look at today is that true ethics, true love, benefits the church. But a lack of true ethics, is our second point, grieves the Holy Spirit. And we'll look at what that means when we get there. So first, how does this benefit the church? Verse 25. We see our first command is to tell us that we are to lay aside falsehood and to speak truth to our neighbor. This certainly encompasses just a general honesty in our dealings with one another. But in particular, as one of my seminary professors pointed out, this is about making sure that we are saying what's true about God to one another. To make sure that we are teaching correctly. Because if we're honest about the things that we do, but we are dishonest about who God is, we can bring tremendous damage to the church. But is speaking the truth in all the things that we do. But notice the reason that he gives for this. He could have said, put away falsehood because it's one of the Ten Commandments. It's number nine. We've already talked about this. But he gives you something else. He says, don't lie because we're members of one another. 
Don't lie because this hurts each other. John Chrysostom, a pastor from the early 400s, had put it this way. If the eye sees a serpent, does it deceive the foot? If the tongue tastes what is bitter, does it deceive the stomach? In other words, what he's saying here is your body doesn't lie to itself. Because that's, that's against the interest of the body as a whole. If the body swallows poison, that still hurts the tongue, even if it makes it into the stomach. We're all united together like a body. And for one to lie to the other harms the body as a whole. And it's not just lying to church members, but you know, we're, we're a collection of families together, being honest with each other and our spouses or our parents, making sure that those, that falls under that same command as well, to be honest with one another. Now, he moves on to this next portion in verse 26, and this is a little surprising. Because we can understand not lying to one another. We didn't spend a whole lot of time on that one because that's something I think we all can agree on. But what about here in verse 26? He says, be angry and do not sin. I thought we weren't supposed to be angry. I mean, it gets more confusing because we get down to verse 31. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger be put away from you. It's the same word. I looked it up. Not some sort of translator error. So what is Paul getting at here when he says to be angry, but do not sin? Well, what I think Paul is saying here is that there is an occasion for anger. This same word, as scholars have pointed out, is used 39 times of God. God is angry at wickedness and sin. So obviously, if this is something God can do, but this is not something that is in and of itself sinful, because this is something that the Lord can do. But it has to be very, very careful with it. That's why it says, be angry and do not sin. The, one of the commentators had put it this way. It says, unlike God, however, people have a tendency to allow anger to control them rather than to control their anger, as God does. For example, when someone in the body of believers has been wronged, it is correct for one to be angry, but not to be consumed by that anger. Another commentator had said it this way. It says, if our anger is not free from injured pride, malice, or a spirit of revenge, it has degenerated into sin. How many times have you been able to keep your anger that free? Are you able to just put that emotion down when it arises? If you can't, then that anger is controlling you. And that's what Paul is talking about here in verse 31. Anger that has control of our hearts. Anger that is out to revenge wrongs done to us. That's not the way to do that. That's why it says in another place that the Lord is the one who handles revenge. We leave it up to him because he can do it without sin. It's very hard for us to do that without sin. So that's what he is talking about here. When we feel angry, this anger should direct us to do something for it, not violent. Prayer, not punching. 
Supplication, not strangulation. These are things that we leave to God. And that's what it says is to be angry and do not sin. And then he gives a further warning about this. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. You all remember the story of Cain and Abel. When Cain was jealous of Abel's sacrifice to God, he was angry with him. And what did God say to him? He says, Cain, be careful, for sin is crouching at the door. Another commentator took that same concept and applied it here to anger. When we allow our anger to sit there and fester, sin is crouching at the door. It never stays there. Anger will change you. Especially anger that's allowed to fester and become bitterness. Augustine had had once said, bitterness is a sword that you try to stab your enemies with by putting it through yourself first. That's what this is. And this is not loving to the body of Christ. So we're to put it away. He continues to verse 28. And he says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This is a radically different approach to sin, isn't it? It's not just not doing the things you're not supposed to do. But here's the right thing that you're supposed to do with it. Don't steal so you don't have to work as hard. Work extra hard so this way you have something to give. The commentators looking at the history of this thing had said that the people that were probably struggling with this were those who were working. But not able to make enough to be able to make ends meet. So would choose to steal from their, from their employer. It's interesting in the way that this is supposed to work out, the idea that they're supposed to have things together so that they have something to give. It gives the expectation of what should have been in the church. If these people were working hard but still couldn't make ends meet, they could come to the church and have their needs met. They didn't have to steal. But that only works if everyone is working hard. If everyone is working to the glory of the Lord, not working as eye service to their employers but so that they might have, so that they can give. It's a very different approach to possessions in the way that we tend to think of things in our country. Is that we look out for ourselves instead of being reminded that there are others that are around us that need care. That's what he's doing here. To do honest work to share with those who are in need. This is ethics and love in action. Now, the next on our list, as we'll spend a little bit more time on, is how we use our words. There's the old adage that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Biggest lie that anyone has ever told, isn't it? I was listening to uh, R.C. Sproul this week, and he had gone through an exercise of what were the five most encouraging compliments that he had ever received in his life and what were the five most devastating criticisms that he had received in his life. That's an interesting exercise if you want to think through that this afternoon. And it really demonstrates the power of words and how an encouragement that someone gives you that you can remember forever. I remember someone once had complimented my voice in college 
said that I had a nice speaking voice, which meant a lot to me because I grew up with a stutter. And I remember someone who had made fun of my stutter when I was a child. I still remember that. I was probably 12 when that happened. And I was in college, it was a number of years ago. But I still remember that compliment firm, fondly. And that was from a stranger at a subway. <laughs> Your words have power. But we tend to use them carelessly, don't we? We tend to think, it's like, well, people know my heart. Yeah, I said that thing, but they know that I love them. It's like, actually, they can't read your heart. All they can read is what you say. Here, what Paul is talking about in verse 29, he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. This would cover speech that is, as the scholars would look at it as, things that are foolish in nature or things that are sexual or things that are untrue about God. And the word corrupting that's used there is often used of rancid fish. It's a gross imagery. But is that how we tend to think about our words when we use them wrongly? It's a stench when we use our words badly. But our culture has trained us not to react to these smelly words. We've gone, as one commercial put it, we've gone nose blind, or ear blind, I suppose, to the words that our culture uses. And we think, well, they're just words. We stop being offended by them because we're exposed to it so much. And then before long, we find it added to our own vocabulary because we are who we hang around and we are what we listen to. Words are incredibly important. That's why it says in Matthew 12, 36, that says, On the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word that they speak. And he says, By your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And how is that? Because your words reveal what's in your heart. Paul Tripp, a... uh, pastor and theologian tells a story of a time in which he went to a a family reunion in which one of the uncles had consumed a little bit too much of beverage and began to say a lot of things that no child should hear. And they said his mother quickly ushered him out of the room and took him to the car. And And she said something that he never forgot. And she had said, there is nothing that comes out of a mouth of a drunk that was not there to begin with. It's the same thing with us. When those words come out of our mouths and say, it's like, well, I didn't mean that. It's like, well, then why did you say it? That came from somewhere. Someone else didn't take over your mouth for a moment. These are things we exercise care about. We as Christians should be especially concerned with words. Because that is where we've... Words that give us life. What we see here in the scriptures. We're intimately aware of the power of words. And their ability to build up or to destroy. So when he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, that's not the end of the statement. His words can do more than just destroy. But they can be building up as well. That we speak only 
such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Wouldn't you like to be known for that? It's like, being around that person, they always have an encouraging word to say. That person's not loaded down with criticism, but uses their words for building up. May we be known for that, both in real life and online. It's easy to think when, we, when our words aren't coming out of our mouths, but they're coming out of our keyboards, and they're just out on a screen, it doesn't feel like it's as powerful. But it's just as powerful. We're seeing an endemic today of depression amongst teenagers because they're bullied at school through these things. No longer does the bullying stop when they leave the campus but it follows them through their phones. We need to be careful the words that we speak. And don't miss opportunities to encourage when you can. It's amazing how little people are encouraged in their lives and how just one timely word can mean so much to someone. This is the encouragement that he gives to us. So, what have we seen so far here in this first point? We've seen that ethics is the study of love. And we have looked how to each of these commandments play into this theme. We want to be truthful because we want to love each other. Lies harm the body. We want to be honest in our dealings, in our labor, so that we would have enough funds to be able to cover those who are in need. When we are angry, we're very careful to limit that because we're aware of what can happen when we're controlled by that anger, especially as it is manifested in the words that we say. But now we'll take a look at, well, what happens when we don't? We're told all these things about what we're supposed to do, and we may get to that day, sometimes those days happen, where we say, I don't care about other people. That's not enough to hold me back from what I want to say. Well, now we'll get into verse 30, as we get to our second point, is that a lack of true ethics grieves the Holy Spirit. As we see here in verse 30, it says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He's reminding you of what it is that the Holy Spirit has done for you. This is not just something that's just been floating around, impersonally doing things. Holy Spirit is a he who's invested in you, who has sealed you for redemption. We don't want to grieve him. Now, when when we say grieve, a lot of times the scriptures will use words for us to be able to understand, but we have to keep in mind that God is different than us. Usually we will grieve something because we didn't see it coming, and we grieve the unexpected nature of a hurt. That's not what we're talking about here with the Holy Spirit grieving. The Holy Spirit is not some fragile, emotional person that we can push over with our sin. It's not that. It's a lot more profound than that. I have something of a lengthy quote, but it's a good one, from Charles Spurgeon speaking on this and how he looks at contrasting anger and grief and what this looks like in the Holy Spirit. He says, grief is a sweet combination 
of anger and of love. When I commit any offense, some friend who has just a little patience suddenly snaps his patience and is angry with me. The same offense, if it is observed by a loving father, he is grieved. There is anger in his bosom, but he is angry and he sins not, for he is angry against my sin. And yet there is love to neutralize and modify the anger towards me. Instead of wishing me ill as the punishment of my sin, he looks upon my sin itself as being the ill. He grieves to think that I am already injured from the fact that I have sinned. I say this is a heavenly compound more precious than all the ointment of the merchants. In other words, what he is saying is when the Holy Spirit is grieved over something, as he looks at us and sees this sin is not good for them and looks at us like a father looks on his children who wants what's best for them, but is saddened when he sees them going in this other direction. When we do hurt our parents, we don't lose our relationship as children to them. Our fathers doesn't disown us. But we do disrupt that sweet fellowship, isn't it? When we can be in the same room, but we feel like we're a million miles away. That's what it means to grieve a parent. And I think that's what it means to grieve the Holy Spirit. This is not us losing our salvation by sinning. Don't hear that. He has sealed us for the day of redemption. But what this does mean is that we can lose out on the peace and the enjoyment of that salvation with our sin in grieving the Holy Spirit. If you take nothing else away from this, just remember this. Your sin has consequences. Whether you personally feel those consequences or not, they do. Your sin hurts someone. Even if nobody else knows about it, the Holy Spirit does. Somebody is always grieved by our sin. If you needed some help, if there's a sin that you're hanging on to, perhaps maybe that would be something to help you fight it. The next time we feel like being impatient with a spouse, we remember this is not a consequence-free emotion. Or when we're going to log on to the computer, it says, it's just me and the screen. No, it's not. Especially us in the screen. There's a whole industry behind that of exploited and hurt people. Our sin always hurts someone. Again, listening to the same series from R.C. Sproul, been preparing for a series on, on marriage here coming up in a few weeks. And he talked about he had a couple that was in his office where one was cheating on the spouse. And she had come in with her, with her other and had told R.C. Sproul, look, this is just between me and him. No one else has to be involved here. This is just between us adults. And R.C. Sproul, in a really rather brilliant move, pulled out his appointment book and said, I have appointments with 28 other people who have been affected by this. 
They included her friends, family, employers. All these people had been broken over this sin. And for those of you who have had that happen in your family, you know what that's like. Now, not every sin is as devastating as another, but every sin does cause pain. That's why he tells us in verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Some have tried to say maybe this is like stair-stepping versions of anger. It's like, I think Paul's just kind of heaping it on. saying, put it all away from you. All this anger, all this malice, all this slander, untruth, just put it all away. Put away the spurs. And instead, in verse 32, it says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is, this first part of verse 32, be kind, is something we see all over the place, isn't it? We actually see it on the, the fence out of the uh, school as you drive by here of, of coming to church. Do you know that is an extremely impossible message without Christ? The bumper sticker, be kind, that's an intolerable burden. That's extremely hard. To be kind when it counts. Being kind to people who are kind to you is easy. That's not what I'm talking about. Be kind to those you don't like. Be kind to those who are mean to you. Be kind to those who don't deserve it. Be kind to the people you have to forgive. You need Jesus to do this. You need Jesus to do this whole chapter. Whole half of the book. That's why we have the first three chapters first. We have to remember that it's the Holy Spirit that empowers us to do these things. And that when we come to this, this situation, it's like, Lord, I really want to be angry here and not sin, but this is really difficult. This is where we call out to Jesus and say, I need help here. Kindness does not live within my heart natively. This is something the Holy Spirit has brought into it. And I need you to bring this out more. And if, this is, and if all that didn't get the point across, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God. How are we going to do that? It's because God's going to come in and fill you. To make you a beloved child. That's how we walk in love. And then again, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It's making reference to the Old Testament, the sacrifices that were done there. When the oxen or the lamb or the goat or whatever it is that was being offered at that time was received as a sweet-smelling savor to God. These sins were covered. But now in Christ, we're all completely forgiven. He has loved us and gave himself up for us, so there's no more need for sacrifices anymore. There's no more covering up the stain. It's gone. That's what gives us the power to do what we're called to do. Because we have been shown great love. Why do we speak truth? Because we've had truth spoken to us. 
Why do we hold back our anger? Because anger has been held back from us. Why do we work hard and provide for others? Because someone else has worked hard to provide for us. Why do we use our words carefully? Because God has used his words carefully towards us. Why do we love? Because God first loved us. That's always and only the motive to live this ethical life of love. Any other motivation? It's not going to last. Well, some of them was kind to me, so I'll be kind to them as long as that. No, it's not going to work. It's like, well, I attended a seminar. I was like, I really, no, that's not going to work either. It's going to be the daily coming back to Christ, daily reminding yourself you have been loved, you have been provided for, and in that strength we go and love others. So that's our takeaway today. Someone has been profoundly ethical to you. God wasn't unethical in saving you. He paid the penalty for your sin. He was was both the just and the justifier for us. He's loved us so much. And so because of that, we can love him too by loving those who are around us. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this time that we are able to spend together and to be reminded of who you are. Lord, I thank you that you've shown incredible love to us and that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. You went to the cross to take the punishment that we deserved. You lived the life that we were supposed to live. And now, by grace, we can receive it. So I ask if there's anybody here who has not found that love of Christ yet, I pray that they would do so even now, that they would remember who they are and who you are, and that they would find rest for their souls. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.